Occasionally, Jennifer and I will try to recall advertisements that we remember from our childhood. So we're talking about late 80s, early 90s here. And it's pretty amazing how we can still remember jingles from 30 years ago, even from products we never used. Uh, and so I'm, I want to give a little pop quiz here for you folks at home, especially if you're uh, around the age that you might remember these uh, fondly as we do. Uh, the best part of waking up is what? Folgers in your cup. Now that's an easy one. Uh, you're not fully clean until you're zestfully clean. Do you remember zest? I'm not sure they make zest soap anymore, but it sure was an awesome jingle. Uh, pardon me, would you have any gray poupon? Now, when I was eight years old, I couldn't have cared less about coffee or soap or Dijon mustard. Certainly not Dijon mustard. But it shows us the power of good advertising, doesn't it? That those things are, are stuck in my head all these years later. And it, it's something I've come to realize as I've gotten older uh, is the true secret of good advertising, which is to sell us on contentment. If you will drink this coffee, if you will bathe with this soap, or eat this mustard, you will achieve a higher level of happiness and satisfaction in life. If you chew this gum, you'll be more approachable. If you wear these shoes, you'll run faster and stay in better shape. Uh, if you... Uh, um, live according to the image that we're presenting here, then how happy a person you'll become. Uh, and see, built into these advertisements is this promise of a better future if you'll just simply buy our product. And see, that's the real trick. If you're going to sell me on contentment, you have to also make me feel discontentment with my present way of life. You know, I have to look at my regular soap, and, and I have to wonder, am I just getting normally clean when I could be getting zestfully clean? Am I wasting my life squeezing store-brand mustard on everything when I could be eating like British royalty? Now, joking aside, the question of contentment is really massive. It's all-encompassing. Every single person has, deep in our hearts, a desire to be happy and significant, to live a life that is meaningful, to be accepted, to be worthy, to feel secure and strong and healthy, to love and to be loved, to feel in control. We all have that desire in our hearts. And all of it plays into this feeling, this untouchable but very real feeling of contentment. And because most of us live with at least some level of discontentment, me included, we're always looking for something to fill in the gaps. But we find, if we're honest, that our sense of contentment is like a black hole. No matter what I chase after in search of fulfillment, it only satisfies partially and temporarily, never fully, in the end it's never enough. Any honest person will admit to that. 
But there is, according to the Apostle Paul, there is a secret to true contentment. He actually uses that word. It's a secret, meaning it's something that is not apparent to us only on the surface. It must be learned. It must be practiced by faith. But this is the only place where it can be found in Paul's understanding. It's not out there to be defined by us. It's only centered on one person. That is the person of Jesus Christ. Deep, true, lasting contentment is found only in him. It's contentment that is not partial, but it's full. It's not temporary. It's everlasting. And Paul is certain of it, and every Christian can be as well. And so we're going to see today how he characterizes, how he defines and understands this deep, real, genuine sense of contentment that we all truly desire. It's in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. We're going to look at the entire scripture, 10 through 13 rather. We're going to look at these uh, these four verses together and then uh, break them down into uh, kind of bite-sized chunks here. Uh, Philippians 4, verse 10. Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We see in this scripture, it begins with a thank you. And it's not apparent just in verse 10, what exactly is happening here. But, but what we can discern as we read through this whole letter is that the Philippian church has sent Paul a financial gift to care for him while he's under house arrest imprisoned in Rome. Epaphroditus is the Philippian man who has come to Rome to deliver this financial gift and to check in on Paul on behalf of the whole church of Philippi. Now, it's pretty amazing when we consider this, that the Philippians were probably a fairly small church, small in number. They, they probably did not have a great deal of wealth. They were 800 miles away from Rome, where Paul was. And so the gathering up and the sending of this gift came at great cost to them. But their their commitment to loving and caring for Paul really has no boundary. They are willing to do whatever it takes to love and bless this man who brought the gospel to Philippi in the first place. And so Paul rejoices over their gift, especially since he knows how difficult it is for them to send it. But then he quickly turns and reinforces a major point in verse 11. For Paul, his relationship with the Philippians was not uh, utilitarian. He wasn't looking for money. That's not why he cares for them and prays for them 
and writes letters to them. He, he's not drumming up financial support here. The true gift is their friendship and their partnership in the gospel and their prayers for him. And so the money is wonderful. It's a tangible blessing. It's good, and it helps him, of course. But Paul has learned not to rely on it. He's not seeking the gift. He has discovered something much deeper and much better. Look at verse 11 again with me. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Uh, two things jump out at me in this verse. First is the way Paul views his own circumstances. Not that I speak from want. Now, wait a minute. I'm not in a position of want. Paul's in prison. He's under the thumb of the Roman Empire. It's entirely likely that he has to ask permission just to go to the bathroom. Pretty much all of the normal freedoms and blessings that we would take for granted, Paul enjoys none of them. And so right away, any illusion that we have that contentment belongs to those who are comfortable and well-off, the Scripture doesn't see it that way. The Scripture does not support that contentment is merely a matter of positive circumstances. And why not? Well, Paul tells us, For I have learned to be content in all circumstances. Now, we might expect that if God wants us to know something, if God wants me to feel a feeling or to believe something, well, he should just kind of zap it into me, right? He should just kind of give us what we need to feel or think. If I need wisdom or humility or patience, whatever it may be, God only needs to kind of wave his hand over me, and there it is. But Paul makes it clear. This perspective, specifically contentment, it had to be learned. He says he learned it. It came slowly over time in his life. And I want us to take this to heart today. Um, back in Philippians 2, Paul said, uh, let us work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Y'all, there is an outward, active, working component of our faith. Like you can't just sit back and think Christian thoughts. There's an, there's an outworking of our faith, a real life application. But we only grow, we only bear good fruit as a result of the working of God. It's ultimately God's work in us that produces it and brings him glory. It's not up to you and me alone. So there is an outworking. There is a a component of striving diligently on our part, but ultimately it's God's work within us. And it's a work that he delights to do in our lives. And so listen, in all of the ways that God is teaching you and shaping you right now, there may be a thousand different ways that God could be at work in your life and in mine. Don't be discouraged by the fact that you have not arrived yet. In light of today's scripture, just thinking about today's topic, if you are not as content as you know you ought to be, 
then you should be encouraged. I should be encouraged by the fact that even the great Apostle Paul had to learn it for himself. God didn't zap it into him. Paul wasn't on such a high spiritual level that he could just blink and these things were somehow true of his heart. No, he had to learn over time how to be a certain kind of person. And so for you and me, whatever it is, contentment or any other sanctifying work of God in your life, don't give up seeking God and repenting of sin and trusting Christ to bring about transformation in our hearts. Very seldom, if ever, will God just zap something into you. But God is always at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is doing a slow but powerful work in your life, and most of it is occurring in the form of baby steps. Don't be discouraged by that. You are learning contentment. You're learning patience. You're learning whatever it may be, and that is a wonderful blessing that God gives to us day by day, and we see it in the testimony of Paul. He learned something. And so the obvious question now is, okay, well, how did Paul learn to have such a deep level of contentment? That's what we all want. So how did he come about it? Well, look at verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Uh, it's safe to say that Paul lived a life of extremes. There were times when he was highly esteemed, he was treated like royalty. There were other times when Paul was beaten half to death, shipwrecked, put on death row. But he says, in, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of both abundance and need. This is the second time that Paul has referenced learning, right? which is to say, I've walked through it all, and God has enlightened me to the secret of true contentment. The learning took time, and it took, frankly, a lot of trial and error, a lot of abundance and need, walking through those things to come to this place. He says, he says over time, through these circumstances, I learned the secret of being content through it all. Now, what's so secret about it? Whenever we see the word secret, our ears, I'm sure, perk up. Like, wait a minute. I want to know the secret. Well, he's going to tell us in a moment what the secret is. But, but first, let's, briefly, let's consider the main ways human beings seek contentment, because I want us to see the contrast in what Paul is actually saying. So there are two, to me, there are two primary ways that we try to find contentment in life. The most common thing we do is we try to seize contentment. We go after it. We decide what we think will make us happy, and we pursue it with all our might, whether it be wealth, achievement, relationship, applause, popularity, you name it. And it makes perfect sense. It's, it's the most natural thing in the world to us. Take aim for what you want 
And in the end, you'll end up happy. You'll have it, and you'll be satisfied. But you know, strangely, it doesn't work. And in any honest person can tell you this, that even if you succeed, even if we take hold of the thing that we're just sure will satisfy us, somehow it still leaves us wanting. And y'all, the Bible has been telling us this from the beginning. For thousands of years now, the Bible has been ultra clear on this. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a great example, this Old Testament book, where Solomon calls it chasing after the wind. It's like the wind. You can feel the pleasure of your pursuit. You know it's real. In some sense, it's very real, but you can never actually take hold of it. You can't hold on to it. You can't make it last. You can't enjoy it in the long run the same way you enjoyed it in the beginning. And then, of course, there's always the threat of losing it. And the threat of losing what we've gained will drive us crazy. So seizing contentment makes sense to us, but it doesn't actually work. Okay, so there's another option, really on the other side of the spectrum, that we seek contentment by detaching from the world, by detaching from our circumstances, our desires. Uh, this is what the great Stoic philosophers taught. Uh, Socrates said, the wealthiest person is the one who is content with the least. Doesn't that sound good? The wealthiest person is the person who is content with the least. In other words, you don't need to worry with your circumstances because you can be satisfied totally within yourself. You can be truly self-sufficient. And in that way, you rise above mere human things. Suffering, poverty, and the rest, those things can't really affect you. And, and this way of thinking is meant especially to encourage folks who are poor or sick, people who have no ability to seize material forms of pleasure. This is great for them because they can simply detach from that and rise above that. We have to just tell ourselves that those things don't really matter, and therefore we can still be independently happy. Now, that may sound good on the surface, but it's actually crushing because it puts all the weight of your contentment on you. You cannot detach yourself from the true difficulties of life without ending up in denial. We've all tried to pretend reality away, and we do it in all sorts of different ways. It may be through substance abuse. It may be through simply... Uh, going on vacation or making a purchase, we, we try to detach ourselves from the feeling of pain and discomfort, anxiety, whatever it may be, grief. We all have tried that. Many of us have, have come up with all sorts of, of systems whereby we try to detach from reality. But ultimately, when we do that, when we try to rise above and pretend it away, we only end up denying that reality, denying pain and grief and suffering rather than dealing with it. You can't detach and find contentment. It just doesn't work. Well, Paul says, listen, you know what Paul notices here? That he, what we notice in him, he's, he has actually lived on both ends of this spectrum. Paul has experienced both abundance and poverty. Most people don't experience both. 
Most people are born into one and they remain where they are for the most part. But Paul knows abundance and poverty, to be filled and to be hungry. And he says, in all of it, I have learned the secret of true contentment. Okay, what is it? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You know, we can take that verse out of context and make it about our own individual ambitions. Or we can see what Paul is really saying here, the point he's really making. I am truly content in all circumstances through Christ who is my strength. Because my life is found in Jesus, no circumstance can rule me or define me, whether good or bad. And I want you to think about how this actually works. Paul is saying, in times of abundance and prosperity, of being filled, I am content. Well, of course you are, Paul. Isn't everybody? I mean, isn't that what it means to be content? You're content because good things are happening to you. Well, no. No, it's not uh, one plus one equals two here. We've already seen prosperity itself does not actually produce contentment. Some of the most miserable people in the world are some of those who are most well-off, most comfortable. But if you believe that every single good thing in your life is a gift from a gracious God, an undeserved gift, then you can enjoy times of abundance without seeking your identity in it. You can enjoy being filled with good things without living in fear of losing them. Do you see what Paul is saying? Even in the good times, if all good things are a gift from God, then we don't find our identity in those things. And therefore, we don't live in greed, the need to always have more. We don't live in fear, the fear of losing what we do have. See, Paul had given up aiming for contentment, and instead he was aiming for Christ. I lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. And because Christ was his ambition, this his was a contentment that he could receive. He didn't have to achieve. He didn't have to earn it or maintain it or hold on to it. Jesus was his focus, and therefore his contentment was found in Christ and not in circumstances, even the best of circumstances. This is why back in Philippians chapter 3, when Paul says, I actually lost all of my abundance at some point, but it was no loss to me at all. I counted it but rubbish, because I have come to know the surpassing value, the surpassing greatness of Christ. Because Paul's contentment was no longer built on temporary things, he was not devastated even when he lost them because he had transferred his joy onto Christ. That's the power of this secret contentment, this new uh, divine contentment. Do we see the power of that? Well, that's amazing. But it's even more amazing for Paul to come around and say, well, I'm also well content 
with the opposite of circumstances. Humble means, he says, in hunger, in suffering, need. I'm content there too. Not because he had detached himself from those painful realities and pretended them away, but because he actually embraced them. And this is so significant. Paul was not content because he detached and rose above difficulty. It's because he embraced difficulty for the sake of Christ. See, Paul believed that even his suffering was producing glory because it was making him more like Jesus. It was opening doors for the gospel. And it was, strangely, his difficulty. It was making Paul far stronger than he otherwise could be. By exposing his own weakness, he actually became uh, far stronger in the long run. And there's a great scripture on this. It's one that I come to often, and I hope you will too. It's so endlessly rich. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul describes being given a thorn in the flesh. That's what he called it. We don't really know what it was. We just know that whatever it was, it was terrible. It was a haunting reality for Paul, painful and distressing. Whatever it was, Paul desperately wanted that thing, that pain, out of his life. He was not content to live with it, to live in that painful reality that hovered over him and haunted him. And so he prayed, he earnestly prayed to God that God would remove it. And God said no. And listen to what happens instead. 2 Corinthians 12. God has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Now listen to Paul's response to that. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. There's that word. I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Contentment in our pain does not come from self-sufficiency. It doesn't come from detachment and denial. It comes from a faith that sees even painful things as God's means of bringing grace into our lives. This is why Paul told the Philippians back in chapter 1, we saw this a few weeks ago, it has been granted to you, gifted to you, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. See, because, because Paul understood his own suffering as a glorious gift because he was suffering with Christ and for Christ, it was in some crazy way, it was a gift, not a punishment, because God had deemed Paul um, his own child and therefore he was going to walk with Paul through these sufferings. Therefore, Paul saw there was deep strength there in his own weakness, a strength which God supplied. Therefore, he could be content that not only was God with him in his hardship, 
but that God would bring about a good and glorious result from those hardships. And so Paul lived with a deep contentment. He embraced his pain rather than running from it or trying to detach himself and pretend it away. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. This scripture is more wonderful than we realize. I've read this scripture off and on now for 20 years, and it is more wonderful than I can conceive. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Is that the basis for our contentment? Y'all, it will change your life and mine when we come to see that contentment is not the goal. Contentment is a gift. We receive it. We learn it as we know and follow Jesus. When Jesus becomes the goal, as he was for the Apostle Paul, contentment becomes part of the beauty of knowing Christ. We don't have to aim at contentment. We simply come to learn it. We come to know it and possess it because we know Jesus. Y'all, here, this is what we possess as Christians. There is a Savior who has come for the world at infinite cost to himself. He didn't enter in casually. He poured himself out. He laid down his life, his own life, for the forgiveness of our sins that we might be saved and reconciled to God by faith. And then, having been crucified, dead, and buried, God raised his son Jesus from the dead to destroy death forever and to grant eternal life and glory to those who trust him. All of this is a gift of grace that we may freely receive. Isn't that amazing? Now, how does this bring true contentment to our hearts? Well, we have a perfect salvation that we could not earn. We don't have to earn it or maintain it. We have an eternal promise that we cannot lose. We don't have to live in fear. We have a grace so great, in fact, that even in our suffering, we are actually brought deeper into the goodness of our Savior. We are not separated from him in pain. We are brought deeper into his grace. And so, y'all, whether in good times or bad, our contentment is no longer built on our own sense of self-sufficiency. But we are now able to put all of our weight on the total sufficiency of Christ. Let's pray that we would learn this glorious secret, a contentment that is not partial, but full, not temporary, but everlasting. Would you pray with me? Father, in this moment, um, I'm, I'm just very much aware of how great this idea is and yet how far away I feel from it. I look at my own life, how easily I fall into discontentment, how easily I 
look around for something to fill in the gaps. And so often for me, it's, it's just, it's fleeting temporary stuff. It's a product that somehow I think is going to fulfill me and, and make me happy. Uh, it's a feeling. It's the applause of others. It, it's, it's something that by its very nature is not true. It's not lasting. And Father, I pray this morning that you would help me to see this as not just as uh, misguided, but it's, it's sinful, that I, I ought to know better. I know that my contentment truly must only be found in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray for me, and I'm, I'm sure that this applies to the rest of us. I pray for us, your gracious forgiveness, your mercy upon us, where we have sought so many lesser things in hopes that we'll be brought into, into a place of lasting joy. And all the while we have the one thing, the one person that you have delighted to give where we actually find fullness. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. David said that and it is true. And in Christ Jesus we know that it's true. And so Father, help me, help us today to look to our Savior whether we're kind of riding high at the moment or whether we are in deep distress, uh, irrespective of our circumstances, our contentment may be rich and true and full because we've come to know the secret that it is not found in the self, but it's found in Christ. And so, Father, would you help us to learn this? Help us, Father, where we are plodding along, and we have not arrived. Help us that, that we would see, Lord, you are at work to teach us this. You are at work to produce this. You're walking us through our present circumstances, Lord, and your hope, your goal and desire right now, Lord, is to bring us more and more of what Paul